2: Represented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code Dan for a special offer when you sign up. That's code Dan, only at DraftKings Sportsbook.
1: I don't know if I'm a bigger fan of this man, his story, or his work, but I am an admirer of all of those things. He is a prodigy who is doing, obviously, important work everywhere, and his latest HBO documentary, Endangered, Uh, Covered something that not a lot of people seem to be interested in in a way that makes me very sad uh, because I care about journalism. He obviously. Cares about journalism, and you've got the newly added endangered tapes streaming on HBO Max and HBO.com. Uh, but you can check out his HBO documentary, Endangered. He just takes the individual stories of a handful of journalists, one of them whom I've admired for a lot of time down here in Miami at the Miami Herald, Carl Joost. And thank you, Ronan, for joining us. I appreciate, as I said, the time and the work. Why this project? I still don't understand how deep your love of journalism runs. You could have done anything with your life. Uh, you were in college at, what, 15 or 16 years old. You've always been ahead of the game, and you chose this. Why this project?
0: Well, thank you. That's a really generous introduction, Dan. It's, it's always good to be here. It's, uh, it is it is a passion or a, or a love for me. I mean, not, not even uh, in the sense of my own career choices, just, just in the sense that I, I see out there in the world, a lot of my peers, people who do the same thing that I do, struggling against some very particular kinds of headwinds, right? It's a profession that is beset by uh, a tumult in our fundamental business models, where people are figuring out how to adapt to cable cutters and a more fractured media landscape and a social media environment where people are more likely to absorb curated content the algorithms give them, right? That they, they're already gonna agree with rather than facts that might challenge their worldview. Uh, and, and then, you know, there's a connected trend of misinformation swirling everywhere and and a political, Uh, strain that is about denigrating the press and suggesting reporters are the enemies of the people. And that's an old authoritarian tactic, but it's having a renaissance right now uh, in several places around the world. And and so it felt important as part of my HBO deal when we were talking about subjects to, to look at, to take a look at that Confluence of trends, and and hopefully do it in a way that that isn't homework, isn't like here's a bunch of talking heads, here's a bunch of stats, um, but was really a kind of a piece of art that was immersive and about following characters you you care about through those challenges.
1: How much appetite have you found? Viewers wanting this information because I feel like you and I are caring about something and caring about something that is important because of more than anything for me, the checks and balances against what's happening in this country with democracy and freedom. There has to be an accountability. You cannot have corruption run amok because there's no one there to check and balance it. The numbers that you threw out there are appalling. The the deserts, as you call them, of local news deserts where there's nothing to watch people from doing awful things with their power and money.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, but when, when I started it out and I was in network news and cable news, I I really prioritized putting local reporters on and picking up stories that local investigative reporters uh had had done um you know tv investigative reporters in that context but in general it was clear even then i mean this is better part of a decade ago now but that that there was a real shortfall in that kind of local reporting and that is what creates accountability it's it's an institution journalism that is that that's enshrined in the constitution for a reason Right, it's it's specifically protected because it does provide a check on power and on corruption, and you you see the consequences of an absence of trust in the facts and an absence of good journalism uh, in national politics, and and you see it locally. I mean, I, I like that you highlighted that because it's it's not talked about enough, and there are experiments that seem to be working in terms of how you make national journalism sustainable you know there's there's contribution-based models there's things like ProPublica there's what the Guardian is doing there's um you know there's subscription-based models that are starting to work the New Yorker has a successful subscription-based business model but fundamentally local news outlets are, are just dying rather than adapting is what the numbers show us too often. So, so it felt important to look at that. And one of our characters in the film, Carl, who you mentioned, who's there in Miami, um, you know, had had done great work for years and years, and and we caught him at a moment where he was really contemplating whether he was even going to have a job. He was living through the the Miami Herald closing its newsroom, um, and. That's something that I think a lot of journalists can relate to around the country and and around the world right now, uh, and it it just it felt important to put a human face on it.
1: What is most endangered?
0: Well, I think our basic rights are endangered if we if we lose journalism and trust in journalism. And uh, you know, I've had a, a front row view of these trend lines because I've moved in different formats in journalism and media, and I've seen how beset they are by some of these challenges. I've also, aside from the economic obstacles, seen how a kind of toxic brand of politics that's about demonizing the press really gets under people's skin and turns them against facts. I did a lot of reporting on January 6th rioters and spent a lot of time talking to these people who really uh, have become angry at the media. And uh, the film is not starry-eyed about journalists being purely heroic. It doesn't suggest that the mainstream media is without flaw, but I hope it does remind people that within that category there are still people sincerely seeking out the truth they're not operating from a place of political bias they're putting themselves at risk and doing difficult work to try to out the truth to create accountability to protect our basic rights and you know there was a reason it's a reliable tactic for authoritarian leaders to try to demonize the press because as as you suggested it it gives them carte blanche to do whatever they want, and it makes it much easier to manipulate people. So it's really important that we, each of us in our media consumption habits, support good journalism where we see it, right? Like subscribe to good journalism you believe in, Um, that we all, I think, check ourselves to make sure that the information we're absorbing does come from a place of careful fact finding and, and isn't part of this swirl of misinformation that's out there. Um, and that we, we push back when we hear leaders doing things like characterizing the press as as enemies of the people, because that is a tactic to make us more manipulable and to put us at risk of losing our rights and our protections and the functioning of our democracy.
1: But it feels like we're losing because as I sit here talking to you, you've made a film that I admire. And I'm like, who's going to watch this? Who's going to care? I don't feel one of the most debilitating things of my lifetime professionally has been watching the last four years that it didn't even take subtlety to take a hatchet to this industry. It was this orange oaf who was able to traffic in something that I was ignorant about. I did not see. Oh, wow. People hate the media more than they hate Trump.
0: Yeah, and then the film is an interesting window into the consequences on the ground, right? Because you have in the United States, uh, one of our characters who's a political reporter going through these crowds of Trump supporters and really dealing with that animosity head on. You have reporters in a couple of other democracies in Brazil where you have Bolsonaro kind of using very similar tactics um, in Mexico. you know, and you have it all against the backdrop of the pandemic, which was such a crucible of misinformation and, and where people really died as a result of misinformation. So I, I share your feeling that it can be dispiriting, but I, I also feel like one reason why I hope people are able to connect with this film is it's, it's in spite of that backdrop, not just dreary and bleak and hopeless, right? It's it's about chronicling the stories of, of brave people who are doing pretty inspiring work in the end. So they're very human. They're very accessible They're You know, you're seeing their home life and their struggles with their families and the personal impact of these issues. And you're you're connecting with how hard it is for them. But, but you're also seeing wow, like these are these are people who w- won't stop in the face of that. And They represent, I think, a whole cadre of the press in a lot of these countries that have that attitude, like in the face of of these times of struggle, we've just got to keep going and bring people the information and create the accountability.
1: You're one of them. You are loath to go down this path with me because I've tried to push you down it a couple of times. But you've been under threat. The work that you're doing has you followed by black ops security. You're threatening powerful people with your work. You are one of these people. Do you take pride in being one of these people who has been under great risk? Because it seems you're, a relu- you're reluctant whenever I push you down this path of like, You've been under duress. You you make it when you help, I'm going to say, lead the Me Too movement with some of your reporting, even though you always make it about the bravery of the of the women and the victims. Um, can you articulate to people what it is you're sacrificing as someone who comes from privilege to take to choose these risks, these risks to your safety?
0: Well, it's a kind kind way to frame it. I mean, I, you know, I I choose to do a very specific kind of work which is about finding facts it's it's not really about leading any movement uh, it's an honor when that reporting can trigger social change uh, and when i have the the sources and the facts that that allow uh, that that mechanic to happen right the facts going into the universe and then and then change happening and and i do because i've been fortunate enough to to be a part of moments like that believe in the power of the the press to achieve that and i think that's an important way our our country is set up it's an important way any democracy has to function you need you need information you need voters to be informed you need the basis for getting rid of corruption and it all it all has to flow from fact so i i don't think this is like incidental or a sidebar i think it underpins kind of everything um and and too often the people who do that work aren't humanized and again it's not about like writing a hero's journey for any of the characters in the film it's not about overly lionizing them it's just about conveying that they're human beings doing important jobs and and i think that that gets lost in this debate a lot and you know i i appreciate you asking about the personal dimension for me it, it's it can be stressful and punishing and uh i i'm not you know playing a tiny violin i'm i'm uh, privileged as you said in a whole lot of ways and i get to do very fulfilling work but yeah, it's yeah you know, something to deal with in a lifetime of therapy, and and I think that's true for a lot of the the people like the ones you see in in this movie, um, that they do carry a a certain personal cost that that comes with this work.
1: I hope you forgive a bit of a biographical prying, but you were at Yale at what age? Was it fifteen?
0: Well like I got in, I guess, yeah, fifteen, sixteen. I I did undergrad at, at uh eleven. <laughs> this is why I'm so socially dysfunctional. And uh and then yeah, and then I, I actually I took two years between uh and worked a little. I worked for Richard Hallbrook and I did some work for UNICEF and um and then I went back after law school and worked for Holbrook again in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan um, when he was in the that job. He was, he was a diplomat. Um, and I was, you know, early in my career, uh, kind of low in the org chart, <laughs> uh, junior State Department guy.
1: I had to have heard you wrong. You did not just say you were doing Yale undergrad at 11.
0: No, 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 no. I went to Bard for undergrad. I'm a, I'm a liberal arts college guy all the way.
1: What was the weirdness in being in college at that age because you I just can't imagine uh, how much childhood ends up getting lost if you're in college at 15 or 16 and what did you want to be when you went there was it someone who was interested in what you're interested in now or did you have a different path
0: Well I was I was uh I was pre-med originally I was a bio major and then I switched I, I guess because I just like so many uh, lawyers I like was defeated by organic chemistry and I had tested in a way where I was supposed to be a quant and then I, I you know wasn't that smart after all and I, I took the path of least resistance and um, went into the humanities instead so I then I went off to, to Yale Law and then I later I did a, a PhD um, at, at Oxford in in political science. I think there was some aspect of, of all of this, mo- mostly it was intellectual curiosity, but it also was like some void of insecurity that I was um, filling. I I think it's it's tough in some ways, it's privileged in, in other ways, as you point out, but it is tough in some ways growing up in the shadow of uh, like a fair amount of scandal and trauma and chaos. Um, and I think, I I wanted to do serious work and uh, was frustrated by, you know, people not taking me seriously in that. So I loaded up on the credentials from a very early age.
1: Does this make you uncomfortable? Because as a journalist, you... uh... Are not the story and I've noticed I've been I have found you to be a curiosity for a long time because I don't understand how you exist I don't understand at this age how you're able to do such work. That is resonant and echoes I remember the first time I saw you. I'm like, how is this baby face? I don't understand willing winning Pulitzer Prizes because he's doing things braver than people who are 40 years older than him
0: Well, that's that's very kind of you. I uh yeah, I here I am. I I exist. I I it doesn't feel. Um, I don't know, I don't know what one says to that. I I I'm glad I get to do work that feels fulfilling, and it's been a a nice thing to have people connect with and respond to that. And uh, you know, it's not always super easy and frictionless from the inside. I guess is all I would say. <laughs>
1: And if it does make you uncomfortable, perhaps you'll forgive this one last question on this front, but you volunteered the shaping of the roots that have to do with trauma. And what are you what are you thinking about there on not the specifics, but how you were shaped or your path was changed because of how you grew up for those who do not know in in the home of Woody Allen with all of the strangeness that existed there?
0: Yeah, I, th- you know, I, I, I'm I kind of known for having a messed up childhood. I uh, I grew up around a fair amount of death and crime, as over the top as it sounds to say. And I think anyone who, who has those kinds of experiences uh, and sees people go through those sorts of things, loses people, you wind up with a different kind of perspective as a result of that. And I think it can it can defeat you, right? It can be like this dark aura that descends over you and you, you never get out from under, or, or it, you just can work with it because what, what alternative do you have? And I, I would hope that the worst parts of my life have given me empathy, if anything, right? That I, that I, um, didn't grow up just in a bubble insulated from that kind of suffering. I, I understand when I'm dealing with people in my reporting who are going through tough things, whether it's, you know, a government whistleblower or one of these fellow reporters who are, um, struggling with you know threats of violence or intimidation. Uh, I I think I probably get it on some level that I might not if uh, if I hadn't had uh, those kinds of obstacles early on
1: trauma as fuel to fight to be a fighter.
0: Sure. I like that. Let's go with that.
1: I don't have a lot of experience with grief, and I know that it's something that uh, my wife tells me this, that it stays with you forever. It doesn't ever go away. It's always with you. So I don't know the shaping elements that it have. I imagine how it hurts. I don't know how to overcome it. Uh, You tie these two things together. You're saying I overcome it by being empathetic and by telling these stories that make people perhaps feel a little less trauma.
0: I I, I don't know that, that it's as neat as that, or, or that I could claim to, to have overcome it. I think your wife is right. I think you just carry, carry grief and loss with you and you continue to miss the people who are gone. And, um, you know, you continue to, to be, uh, haunted by the horrible things, but, you know, I'm also a pretty goofy person in my personal oh, but, but life. You're, right? But like,
1: you're, you're doing something that allows the vulnerable to give you treasures because they trust you. That is a bit of a gift to, I mean, you're using it uh, for good.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of parts of me that probably contribute to me being a connector with other people and, and a listener. And like some of that is just personality stuff. Like I've had friends tease me for always being the guy who winds up at the end of every party with the like the Cecily Strong SNL character who's the, the worst girl at the party, and like, they're talking my ear off because you know I do. I think in an interaction with a new person, I'm I'm like, all right, it's on me to find the kernel of of what's fun and interesting in this person, um, and not everyone has that that posture towards other people. Um, And, and there's good and there's bad in that. Uh, It's just, it's kind of who I am. And sure. I think, I think like trauma and, and the difficult stuff that I carry with me is, is part of that. But like I was saying, it's also not, it's not like you can sort through all of that through work. It's, I'm blessed to just have like brain chemistry. That's, that's not that depressive. So, you know, I, I get anxious and I have all sorts of, um, you know, moments of, of struggle in my own mental health, but I, I do fundamentally have a bit of resilience, I think. And, and I'm also, as I mentioned, like a a pretty like goofy, lighthearted person. And sometimes, sometimes dealing with, uh, painful stuff is just about like living a good life and having good friends around and playing some video games <laughs> cutting loose, uh, and, and none of the heavy stuff that we're talking about. But, I, but I think the the work, you know, all of our work is informed right by, by who we are and where we come from. So it's not disconnected.
1: Again, forgive, uh, the prying elements of this, but you, uh, you have been a curiosity to me for a long time because I've wanted to know where the work comes from. Uh, what is, what is the well? And when you talk about, um, the dysfunction the personality dysfunction that you identify uh you almost can't be functional if you're going to harvard or yale that early can you like you it it is that seems unnatural it seems like almost um impossible to be adult in all those ways and that one
0: yeah i don't know i i i i had a great time honestly maybe because i'm i'm more gregarious and social i i just like i had fun and i have great friendships from even even like being in undergrad at age 11. i I have friends from that period of my life that i still keep up with uh and i have a great a great group of law school friends great group of grad school friends so so I don't know. It worked. But yeah, it's for sure weird. I don't I don't know that I would encourage my kid to do that. But I really wanted to and I don't think I would have been happy if I hadn't done it. And it was ultimately my choice to make. So I'm glad nobody stopped me
1: when you're talking about i wouldn't raise my kids that way what have you learned across and this is a broad question but across the 30 plus years where you're like i'm not going to do it that way because that was the wrong way for me that is not going to be the way God, how me.
0: long do you have
1: <laughs> <laughs> well we're already <laughs> in these murky all, waters
0: all and, <laughs> <the things laughs> and every, every last thing <laughs> so the- I actually, you know i had a lot of of wonderful things in my in my background you know i think my mom was very altruistic and public service oriented and i really i got that from her and she's also you know smart and, and hysterically funny and doesn't take life that seriously even while she cares about the state of the world in that way so
1: uncommonly but, strong yeah. as well uncommonly strong woman yeah, i'm on i'm yeah, on the outside on that one obviously and, but just everything and i've seen i had seen.
0: to you know see her go through a, a lot and and witness that strength so I think there are, there are good things, uh, and there were, you know, wonderful, magical parts of my childhood. Um, and, uh, and yet I, I would hope that I could create an upbringing, I guess, for even when I have kids, uh, that's a little, little less chaotic, a little less, uh, less death and destruction. I mean, that's not, that's not her fault, but, um, it's just the way it played out.
2: My team is one win away, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th.
1: what have been the surprising reactions to endangered uh what has been feedback that you weren't expecting
0: well it's been really gratifying to hear from fellow reporters about it you know that that have said that it resonated with their experience and they felt like it was a valuable chronicle of of where our industry is right now and the importance of of what we try to do and and by the way i can't take credit for that. It's, it's it, two incredible filmmakers that I teamed up with, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, um, who really directed the hell out of it. And, and they're great. And I had admired their work. And we had talked about teaming up on something. And, and they really did a great job of this at a, at a very challenging time, because it was a pandemic shoot, too, which ended up adding so much, right? Because we weren't just watching reporters go through this stuff at any time. We were watching them go through it during the pandemic which was such a powerful prism through which to view these issues and and then you know connected to other journalists responding to it there's this side series the endangered tapes which you can find if you if you go to the film endangered on a, on hbo max and you know drop down there's this side series of six little bite-sized interviews that i did with other journalists of different kinds, people with different vantage points on the state of the free press. Um, and, and they're really interesting conversations. I mean, those are, those are, uh, calls that I did behind the scenes while we were producing the film to try to understand these issues that we're talking about from as many different vantage points as possible. And it's really nice that HBO gave me a chance to, to share those publicly. Cause I, I found them really interesting and informative.
1: What are the inspirations you're chasing next?
0: That's such a lovely way to put it. I, you know, I'm on, uh, a handful of print stories and in production on a handful of documentaries.
1: Subject matter, uh, cryptic on purpose because ideas, (laughs) uh, ideas are proprietary, but I, I was just more.
0: Not not, even that there's like, you know, source protection issues and, and, uh, the strange thing about my work is like, you have to really keep things under wraps sometimes, uh, for a whole variety of reasons until you, uh, until you make things public in a way that all the sources involved are on board with.
1: Let me ask it a different way then what is calling you or how do you get called? How do you get summoned?
0: <laughs> I love that framing too. It's like the the, the bat signal um, uh, people people you know joke about that on Twitter and stuff it It's a lot simpler than that it's it's uh, you know my email is is on my my Twitter account. You can run an underscore at new dot com if you have a tip. And then, and then often like with, with any reporter, it's a combination of, you know, I, I have one story that leads to another, uh, I become obsessed with some topic that's playing out that's already public and, um, you know, I'm able to put out a call for leads and something comes over the transom. There's, there's like the usual ways that reporters get their leads.
1: Always your curiosities though first, correct like it's not necessarily causes or anything else it's what's the tip uh, and okay, that's interesting. Let me see if I yeah. follow that. Just the starting point is always have you grabbed what you've put the hook in on the curiosity
0: yeah it's it's what's gonna be a a big scoop right to put it cynically and and to put it less cynically like what what's going to make an impact in the world um but it's not it's not a agenda or even issue driven it's just like what are what are interesting characters what are interesting stakes what are issues that are affecting people
1: you are very careful to point out uh various times that i've talked to you you don't want to be playing the tiny violin on your behalf however i have talked to mitch album About uh, Tuesdays with Maury and the unexpected consequence of now when he goes out of his house, what ends up approaching him isn't a sports fan asking him about how the Lions are doing. It's somebody with a story that can't just be walked away from the energy suck of when someone sees you and wants to talk to you about this thing that has most recently made you famous, which is this is the person who I can tell my story to who will hear me and will get it out into the world how much of a drain is that and i'm i'm not asking you to lament your situation i'm prodding you to your life changes as soon as you become a part of this story and this movement
0: yeah that aspect of it is both the privilege and and as you suggest something that can be uh that difficulty too it's um you know, it's a privilege in the sense that people do feel they can share their stories with me and that fuels the reporting. Uh, and of course it's an honor when someone comes up and says the work mattered to them or, you know, shares something personal. Uh, but then there's also just the general dynamics of of becoming famous, which is a weird alienating thing. It's like, it's very, hard to connect with people and in your, one's personal life. It's, um, it, it creates a situation where in a lot of interactions, you're, you're more of an idea that people have of you rather than, a a, you know, a person who's judged in the way that we we all kind of want to be, which is just as human beings. So it can be hard to, it can be hard to figure out a way around that. And you see, people with public profiles responding to that in different ways they become shut-ins they you know they uh only interact with other famous people which i I wouldn't want to do and my industry isn't really suited to anyway um and you know i don't my approach is just to like continue to live my life and ride the subway and um like try to try to just treat it as if it's not happening i guess i don't know if that's like a healthy rational approach but it's it's the only thing i can figure out how to do
1: this is too mathematical but you would say what percentage of you if fame is good and what percentage is bad if you had a pie
0: chart on it oh man pie chart <laughs> i i don't know i you know I don't want to be flip about the benefits. And I, I do think that it causes people to pick up the phone when I call, which is, which is no small thing. And you know, I, I also, I didn't choose it, but I, but I did choose it, right? Like I, I was under a microscope from the jump in a way that wasn't voluntary, but I, I did also then choose to write high-profile stories and, you know, to like go out and talk about those stories in the media because I I felt like that was the best thing to serve those stories. So I, I've put myself out there publicly to an extent and it feels a little churlish to complain about it too much. But I guess nobody really knows what they're signing up for uh, when that passes a certain point. And, I, I, I do think I won't give it a ratio because it is too mathematical, but I, I do think there's a way in which I, I felt like that went from being mostly a good thing to being probably majority a, a tough thing to contend with.
1: That's what i would have guessed i would have guessed i should have asked it another way mostly bad instead of mostly good but i don't know how you disentangle yourself from the idea that fame was in your household from the moment that you arrived in it
0: yeah i i didn't really have a choice but but then i to the extent that i did choose as an adult uh what i was doing with my career i you know i chose some public things so I guess I kind of, I signed up for this, but, uh, but it's, it is, it can be hard and and isolating. And in terms of the professional stuff we're talking about, it, I think it's just, it's complicated. It's, um, you know, triggers all kinds of resentments and enmities and, and skepticism. Um, but, but I guess that's just, it's through my, whole life it's been variations on that that theme of being a little bit under a microscope and sticking out like a sore thumb in social settings is that how you became an empath I don't know I mean I, you know it's like I, I take it as a compliment to to have you call me an empath i i uh, I would leave that for others to judge i i think um, I think there's probably some connection there there's probably some desire to connect with people deeply through and across the chasm of, uh, you know, being, being, a, an oddity or curiosity or an idea that people have rather than a person.
1: You arrive with a certain set of expectations, right? People think they know something based on your work and based on your story. And you'd prefer a blank slate. I take it. You'd, you'd prefer to just arrive in a place and, and have the, uh, the judgments made after that.
0: Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, that's, you know, that's the fantasy, right? Like certainly, certainly in, in, uh, you know, in, in one's personal life, it's like, that's, that's all you want. You want to not be recognized.
1: You have dated, and I don't know if you are now married or not, to uh, former presidential speechwriter uh, speech John Lovett, right? What would he say about your empathy? What would, would, would he say that uh, your empathy is something that is quite the cross to bear because you're absorbing, uh, you're absorbing the pain of others and you're welcoming the pain of others and you are a treasure to people who trust you enough to give you their pain?
0: Once again, you're very kind, and I'm sure if you went down the list of my romantic history and, and asked people I've dated whether that's all a, a walk in the park to to live with and be around, uh, you'd get a a whole fun cross section of different, different opinions. I mean, I think that I uh, I think I'm I think I'm great to be with. <laughs> of course, that's my take, but I but I also uh, I think it's like it's a lot to sign up for um, because it is, you know, I I think I have with each passing year chilled out a little more, but it's also in in ways that are beyond my demeanor or anything I can control just a a lot. It's like people coming up in strange ways that create imbalances in relationships. It's it's a fair amount of attention. It's a pretty intense work schedule. Um, So, you know, I think I think people have had to be uh, willing to sign up for that.
1: Do you hide in your work or do you simply love it so much that you, uh, you're you just a go-getter and always have your foot on the gas? Uh,
0: I, I think it's the latter. I think I, I love my work. Uh, I think I have fairly dysfunctional work habits and work-life balance. And maybe I should cut myself some slack and it's just work that requires that kind of intensity you know i still when i'm on a giant project the home stretch is usually college all-nighters over and over again and uh i've i've had to moderate that and i care about being good to people i work with and I, you know i don't make people come along uh for that ride too much but ultimately that's that's my life, and I've stopped trying too hard to change it because I think it is the equilibrium I just naturally fall back to that if i'm gonna if I'm gonna finish a big thing, I gotta go all in but that that's also true of a lot of writers I know
1: fun or fulfilling like i with with writing, I find it painful and lonely, the reporting I find painful and lonely the process the only thing that uh, gives me something that feels like joy is the fulfillment on the back end, but I don't know what your relationship is with that stuff.
0: Yeah. It's the old Dorothy Parker quote, right? It, uh, to, to love having written <laughs> uh, and to not love writing is is like the classic writer's dilemma. I I do like the actual writing, but I think that everything around the writing is so fraught and stressful uh the deadlines the kind of gathering the material together at the end when you're ready to write um i like the i like reporting conversations i like gathering information and like piecing together the puzzle of a story and i and i like the act of creation of you know building sentences Um, particularly if it's something that's a little more not personal because writing about oneself is a nightmare, but, but, um,
1: Not for everybody. It sounds you. Yeah. A, a, the entire time I talk to you, like I, I feel deeply uncomfortable on your behalf whenever I ask <laughs> questions because uh, that's the, what the, I strive
0: for.
1: There, Well, they're, I know I'm prying, and I in can. a deep
0: discomfort. <laughs>
1: I just, but I, I see that you'd rather talk about the work than yourself, and yeah. I admire the work and you so much that I'm sorry that my curiosities get away from me because I'm not intending to you to know, make you un- to make you uncomfortable.
0: Sure. With you're this more thing. gracious about it than most it's i mean it's a bit of a complex because i you know i think i've been very very conditioned to the fact that it's it's a double-edged sword and like too too much the focus on me a is a distraction from the work at times and b uh you know it's it's sure there's there's like positive affirmation out there in it but um that can curdle very quickly and it's very closely connected to resentment and skepticism. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think the internet has, has made probably every public person convinced that everyone hates them. So (laughs) that's just to operate under that assumption.
1: Wow. I would not think that that would be your experience, but I guess it's unavoidable, right? Like I
0: I I, think it's, it's like a rational read on, on what's actually out there, but yeah, sure. It's, it's, I think we all internalize the, the bad stuff. Right.
1: Oh, but I would think that you would be getting something closer to universal applause.
0: Well, I do get some of that too. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't complain too hard, but, uh, but no, there's, there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of nasty out there for, uh, for everyone, including me
1: if we were to do the line items on the enjoyment in the work because you're making an evolution now it's not just the written word it's not just constructing a sentence you are now going into video you're evolving your career so on the list of fun stuff or enjoyable stuff in your work whether it's interviewing people reporting gathering writing uh, the The podcast form, the documentary form the the one that you look at and is just the most fun for you in in work is what or is it all about chasing the fulfillment?
0: I like the granular creative stuff to go back to that question about you know is it fulfillment or is it fun and in what measure and in what parts of the work i I think um you know if i'm like get getting up in the pro tools session and like massaging the crossfades and and where the music goes in the audiobook or i'm like you know working on you know very various various like highly specific creative things that you know as i mentioned the the sentence structure building a sense of sort of atmosphere if it's a slightly more creative end of like m- more in the books than the, the clinical uh investigative reports um yeah that's that's probably the stuff that's unalloyed fun for me
1: how about pride personal pride in doing something do you have a work that represents your greatest source of you know what i'm going to allow myself the self-love of i really did that well i honed my skills and i did a job well done and i made i made, i created something that i'm prouder of than most of the things that i've created
0: Wow, that's that's a really interesting question that I haven't contemplated. I think you're probably right that I deny myself the the self-love uh that is required to even have that conversation. Like it just it seems like hubris to to look back at the the work and pick favorites um like it's all encased in amber and part of a history that can be judged. I do think I think like the the actual granular investigative reporting in my New Yorker pieces uh, like gets stronger and stronger and more and more ambitious. This the last story I did for them, um, the last like big big scale thing, which I worked on for a couple of years was on the spyware industry. And it was really nice having the kind of beat reporters who are on that beat day in and day out uh, for more like news wires or, or daily newspapers really celebrate that as something that was significant uh, as an unpacking of that industry. And you know, it was very, very long, detailed piece of reporting on that that world that involved a lot of on-the-ground work gathering facts in different countries and was like a pretty tiring thing to put together and, and a little bit esoteric for that, right? Like, I don't know how many people make it through to the end of a 10,000-word New Yorker piece, but... Um, I assume it's, it's like fairly niche, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of, uh, myself and and of the team of editors and fact checkers, uh, that make a, a story like that happen.
1: You've done deep dives on Me Too, on Harvey Weinstein, on Britney Spears. So go ahead. I'm going to allow you the self-love and pride of telling this audience, which might not care at all about the lengths you went to on that spyware story, to explain to them why it's important. <laughs> Thank
0: why, you for having allowed me that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> why you chose it, what it is that what it is that makes it a special story for you beyond the industry telling you, man, it's important that you came in here and your reporting explain to people something that we've been trying to explain. explain to them, but you taught them in a way that is important, that got us across a bridge because you brought it a little more to the mainstream, even if even if the details of it represent uh, minutia that most people would find a little too deep.
0: Well, that that story is really about the fact that our phones are increasingly public spaces. It's it's technologically so easy to hack someone's phone that you wind up with a high stakes situations in pl- places under repressive regimes where journalists and dissidents might be killed because of information discovered on, on their hacked phone. Um, and B for all of us, you yeah, we're, we're, we're living under the imminent threat of a really Orwellian scenario where there just is no digital privacy. We're, we're kind of already there is the thing that I found interesting about reporting that out. Uh, and that, that story, you know, in terms of the things that I, I liked about it, it, it had a lot of different moving parts and I embedded with this spyware maker NSO group in Tel Aviv and, and got to kind of see the inner workings of them building this technology, which is quite troubling. Uh, and then I also got some, some really interesting, colorful on the ground. Stuff related to the the battles that the big tech platforms are waging with these interlopers in their system, these uh, you know these private spyware vendors and hackers, who come up with these incredibly elaborate hacks to to breach, for instance, iMessage on your iPhone, uh, and getting the inside account of like you know Mister Robot style hacking battles that take place over that was was really interesting to me so it actually was it was very narratively rich and accessible for anyone who who uh did care to brave a long new yorker piece i
1: didn't i didn't mean to suggest that it wasn't but what would you tell the people listening in the reporting of that that are the most appalling details when you say oh we're already there your privacy has gone
0: oh well you know i i documented the the largest group hacking in the, in the world, um, which was the hacking of a bunch of, uh, politicians in, in, uh, Catalonia, um, the separatist region of Spain. And it, you know, I, I think the, the headline of the reporting was really that it, it has come to democracies like that. It's, it's sort of everywhere. It's all over Europe, the United States has toyed with this technology and It's hard to see how absent really intensive regulatory efforts, we're going to stop that slide into that Orwellian scenario.
1: I urge the audience again, his latest HBO documentary is almost incapable of doing anything other than excellent work. Endangered is the name of it. Executive produced by him and also the Endangered tapes streaming on HBO Max and HBO.com. Thank you. Always
0: grateful for the time, Ronan. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.
2: My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.